Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast, where we go bigger, better, and deeper, a bigger impact for Christ in the gospel, better understanding of scripture and how to use it, and a deeper walk with God. Today, let's go deeper as we continue our little summer series of uh, just revisiting some messages. These are blasts from the past at Pathway Church. And this is a message from the book of Acts about a year ago, and it's called Our Turn. Don't freak out, but Our Turn to be Pentecostal Part 2. Last episode was Part one, that was 163. Today's episode, 164, part two, our turn to be Pentecostal. If you're still around, that's awesome. Thank you. Let's go get it. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living, because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. If you have your Bible, open your Bible today to two places. We're going to mainly be in Acts chapter two. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then uh, right before that, John chapter 20, okay? So Acts chapter 2 and John chapter 20. So go to Acts 2 and put your guide in there or your bulletin or some kind of bookmark. And then John chapter 20, we'll start in Acts. Today we are in Acts chapter 2 and that is a pretty awesome place because Acts chapter 2 is spooky and it's weird and it's very confusing. And so all of that makes it very fun for me to have studied and also for me to be able to teach it today. We're not going to finish it, but we'll get into it, I think, in ways you might not have thought of before. Uh, My message today is a kind of mashup. So we'll start here in Acts 2 and then John 20 and back and forth. The book of Acts of the 66 books of the Bible, they're all classified in certain categories. This one is classified as history. It tells the history of the first generations of Christians right after Jesus. The title of our series through the book of Acts for this summer is called Our Turn. And that's because the author of this book, his name is Luke, the same one who wrote Luke, who is a doctor. Dr. Luke, specifically says in his opening sentence that he is writing this book all about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. So this book is what Jesus began to do and teach, and that means now it's our turn, the church's turn, every Christian's turn to keep on doing and teaching what Jesus did and taught our turn. And specifically, we are here in chapter two. And my talk today is it's our turn. And specifically, our turn to be Pentecostal. I know some of you are like, really? Our church? Yeah. To be Pentecostal, part two. Part one was last time. If you were here, if not, they're all online, all the talks. So our turn to be Pentecostal. So if you've ever heard the phrase speaking in tongues, right here is the source of all of that kind of talk. And let's look at the beginning of Acts chapter two. And verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is Something that happens on the day of Pentecost, this was a feast day for the Jews. This meant it was a pilgrimage. Jewish men were supposed to travel from all the different nations and language groups of the world to come to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. And when that happened on that day, the Holy Spirit came upon this small gathered group of believers in Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it says right here, they spoke in tongues. They spoke in other tongues. And what that means, we talked about this last time, is that they were suddenly able to speak in normal human languages they had never studied or known before. 
They could speak like, you know, in the equivalent of French and German and Spanish and Italian and all these different languages they had never heard before. Now, normally, when people today, especially Christians, talk about speaking in tongues, this is not what they're talking about. The modern versions, uh, and by the way, the term for churches generally, this is kind of a generalization, that speak in tongues as a normal practice, that term is called charismatic, charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches, or now there's a phrase, New Apostolic Reformation. But those churches generally normalize speaking in tongues for every Christian. Like I said, it's a generalization, there are exceptions. The modern version of speaking in tongues is not speaking in human languages. Instead, today, speaking in tongues is what is called ecstatic utterance. Ecstatic utterance means syllables coming out of a person's mouth without meaning when the person is in an altered state in an ecstatic state, an altered state, and sounds are coming out their mouth that are not normal human languages. So that's what most Christians today and what most charismatic churches today preach and normalize. Now, I'm not talking about specifically that today. We're going to set that aside for now. I intend to come back to that, okay, next week. Because ecstatic utterance is not what happened on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, they spoke in known languages. The believers had a sudden miraculous ability to speak in human languages they had never known before, and this was amazing to the crowd. If you look down Acts 2 and verse 5, continuing right along, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God, not ecstatic utterance, but specific human languages. So the people had journeyed to Jerusalem from all over the known world were being spoken to in their own languages by people who five minutes earlier couldn't speak their languages. That is the origin of speaking in tongues. And that was a miracle. Now, let's turn over to John 20. Because in John 20, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so it's one book to the left if you're in Acts. In John 20, you have doubting Thomas. So here's Thomas. He's one of the disciples. He's heard that, he knew that Jesus died and he's heartbroken, right? And then he's heard now that Jesus has risen from the dead. He heard this from the other disciples who saw Jesus, but he didn't believe. And even after, many disciples who personally saw the risen Savior told him Thomas still didn't believe. In fact, Thomas actually made an announcement to them all that unless he could see Jesus personally and touch the wounds in his hands and his side, he will not believe. Careful what you say to God. <laughs> and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut. He had the power of dematerialization now in his resurrection body. And stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. In that one moment... All of Thomas's doubts were washed away. Why? Because he had undeniable evidence. And with that undeniable evidence, Thomas confesses Christ. And I understand that. I get that. That seems awesome. There, that, that's something that it's natural to want. I think as Christians, we naturally want to see, want to touch, want to hear, want to know by experience that God is real. Not just, you know, by someone telling us. 
We want undeniable evidence of God. We want the sign. We want the wonder. We want the miracle. The miracle. But what if that is not the method of God? So let's go back to Pentecost in Acts 2 and pick it up at verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7 and 11. It says, and we've already read this, but then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not these all who speak Galileans, meaning uneducated and unsophisticated? We hear them speaking in our own tongues, languages, the wonderful works of God. All these languages from all over the known world, all these uneducated Christians now are fluently speaking languages they have never known before. It's amazing. It's astonishing. It's miraculous. It's unexplainable. Only God. This miracle is undeniable evidence for the message of God. Now, when we look around our culture today, the prevailing philosophy of modern American culture actually goes by the name of materialism. Materialism says that everything can be explained by matter and energy. Materialism goes hand in hand with another prevailing philosophy called naturalism. The two go together. Naturalism and materialism are twins. The laws of nature govern everything, define everything, make up everything, explain everything, and give whatever meaning and value might happen to exist in everything. This is naturalism. There's nothing above nature. There's nothing behind nature, nothing within nature. It's just nature, what you have in nature, what you have in human life and all life. You have molecules bouncing in chemical soup like ping pong balls, supercharged with electromagnetic energy. And there you go. That's you. We are chemical and electric machines, as is all life. Thank you, Big Bang, for making us. (laughs) On the other hand, There are Christians. Christians are not materialists, and we are not naturalists. We say you cannot account for life, love. You cannot account for the human moral impulse without something beyond nature and beyond matter. We believe in God and the devil, heaven and hell, angels and demons, and another kind of material called spirit. The prevailing mindset of modern American culture is materialism and natural and naturalism, but the prevailing mindset of the child of God in biblical Christianity is spirit spirituality, and supernaturalism. And that is exactly what we see here on the day of Pentecost. So down comes the Holy Spirit of God in power. And the first great sign of his presence is this speaking in tongues, this true blue bona fide, unarguable miracle of speaking in human languages that the speakers never knew before. And you cannot explain it. Science can't explain it. Nature can't explain it. Materialism, naturalism cannot explain this. This is undeniable evidence of someone supernatural or something supernatural. And we take this as undeniable evidence of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Not so fast. I tricked you because when you think... Just when you think that is a miracle, that a, just when you think that a miracle is undeniable, along come the deniers in verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are drunk. So how do the scoffers explain the ability to speak in so many new languages they never knew before? They're drunk. That makes me scratch my head because how does drunk explain anything? How does drunk suddenly give anybody a PhD in a foreign language? If you're being really logical, which the scoffers are not, but if you're being really logical, then being drunk makes the miracle all that more miraculous. Wow. They're even able to speak these languages when they're drunk. It's a double miracle. Praise be. I mean, this you guys... Scoffers will be scoffers. 
So the leading disciple at the time, who is Peter, Peter stands up to explain and to defend what happened there on the day of Pentecost. And he actually gives here in Acts chapter 2 one of the most important and tightly reasoned sermons ever in Christian history. I think to go through it decently would take about two to three hours, but I do not want to shrink our church that much. So let's just look at sections. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, Joel, Old Testament prophet. Right? So now he's quoting. And it shall come to pass in the last day, said God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit on, in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everything thing from here after the word Joel to the end is a quotation, except for this one phrase, and they shall prophesy. That is inserted by Peter. That's not a quotation. This is Peter quoting the Old Testament, specifically quoting Joel 228 and 29. Joel wrote eight centuries before Christ. So he's going back 800 years and pulling from the Old Testament. And so Peter quotes Joel. Why? He quotes Joel for a couple of reasons. First, because it they're Jews, and they respect the Old Testament as the word of God. And by the way, we Christians do as well. The word of God starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. The Old Testament is the word of God for the church today. So is the New Testament. That deserves an amen. All right, so he quotes Joel because the Jews respected Joel, as do we. And he also quotes Joel because Joel actually here, and it doesn't sound like it, but he is. He's giving an explanation, and he was predicting what was happening with the speaking in tongues. How so, you say? Let us take a look. Six little lessons here from Joel. So Joel starts by saying, and it shall come about in the last days. So first of all, the timing, in the last days, which technically doesn't mean the end times. A lot of us think last days, Antichrist, Russia, you know, Armageddon. What it means in this context is in the days of the Messiah, which the Jews were expecting. They were waiting for their Messiah, and he actually came. That was Jesus. Jesus was the Savior Messiah of the Jews and the world sent to bring the world back to God. And the Messiah came to his people, and what did they do? They crucified him. They rejected him. The very people, by the way, the very people, by the way, standing there in the audience in front of Peter, because this stuff happened a month and a half ago, Jesus being crucified in that same city of Jerusalem. The very people standing in front of Peter were guilty, many of them. By quoting Joel, Peter is saying that y'all ignored a clear prophecy of the coming Messiah right in your own Bible, which you are students of. What's happening at Pentecost is proving their rejection of Jesus as wrong. They made a huge mistake by rejecting Jesus, and Joel is saying so. That's the timing. Then you've got the outpouring. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The spirit is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the pouring out of the spirit means an abundant and more than usual influence and work of the Holy Spirit in and among God's people. That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We will come back to this. And when that happens, Joel prophesied a blessing. He prophesied both a blessing and a curse. In the blessing... He talked about dreams and visions. The prophecy of Joel includes dreams and visions coming upon, he says, all flesh, old and young, women and men, servants 
and free, all social strata, uh, stratums, all, all ge both genders, both genders, both of them, two, the two of them, and, <laughs> and all ages, right? So the blessing is dreams and visions, which it's just, you know, everybody's like, oh man, when, when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm gonna have a vision. <laughs> you know, the, the best thing you can see is the printed words on the pages of your Bible. Vision that. Okay, so dreams and visions was a mode of revelation in Old Testament times, and it simply means a clearer and clearer revelation of the word of God and the plan of God in and through Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen when the Spirit gets poured out. A clearer and clearer revelation of the Word of God and the plan of God in and through Jesus Christ. Why? Because what is the Holy Spirit's particular topic? Answer, Jesus. Jesus, the Holy Spirit speaks of Christ. The Holy Spirit uplifts Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ, John 15, 26. When he comes, he will testify of me, said Jesus. Of all the things God's Spirit has to say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the main thing. And when the Holy Spirit comes in power, as he did at Pentecost, he is going to be nothing but a giant neon flashing arrow pointing at the Savior. And one of my biggest struggles with the charismatic and Pentecostal and New Apostolic Reformation churches is that they overemphasize an experience of the Holy Spirit when actually the Holy Spirit came to emphasize the truth of Christ. And we should emphasize the truth of Christ and not the experience of the Spirit if we want to follow on with what the Spirit is doing. Yeah, that's an amen moment right there. So... And listen, guys, this does not mean to neglect the Spirit. And there are all kinds of people who accuse churches that honor the Word of God and the Bible as, you know, you're worshiping the Bible. You're not idolaters. You're bibliolaters. You know, like, shut up, you know. We know nothing of God apart from what's in here. We know nothing of Christ. We know nothing of the gospel. We don't know how to live. We don't know who Jesus is making us to be. We don't even know how the Holy Spirit works apart from reading this thing and studying it. So that's one of my biggest problems. Yes, we should not neglect the Spirit. We should not neglect the filling of the Spirit of God. In fact, in a Wednesday night Bible study, we spent weeks on the filling of the Holy Spirit and what it means. We don't neglect that. But Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will testify of me, John 15, 26. And that is the main thing. I love how Martin Luther said, the Holy Spirit teaches Christ, the poor Holy Spirit. He doesn't know anything else. That's kind of how I feel. And then there's a cursing. He talks about there shall be wonders in heaven above and signs and blood and fire and smoke. Because the, the blessing was a clearer and clearer revelation of Jesus Christ, specifically through the apostles in Scripture. And now the cursing is the doom of those who reject Christ and neglect his salvation. Joel, quoted by Peter, Joel warns of the coming judgment day of God. And he calls this day, and I'm quoting, the great and awesome day of the Lord. That particular phrase is, was used throughout the Old Testament to refer to a whole complex of events in the judgment of God. The great and awesome day of the Lord, it will be holiness, it will, it will be holy, it will be merciless, and it will be an exceedingly just retribution of the wrath of God against sinners. And the great and awesome day of the Lord is scary and Peter is quoting Joel, who's warning about the awesome day of the Lord, and the audience is actually scared. You know what would be good? If unbelieving people in Christian audiences were scared, 
of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That would actually be a good thing. But then you've got this warning of wrath to come, and now who does Peter talk about? The Savior. And now he's quoting Joel, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's eight centuries B.C., quoted right there on the day of Pentecost. So here we have it. God the Father pours out God the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim God the Son and salvation and forgiveness in him so that sinners can be forgiven and be delivered from condemnation on that great and awesome day of the Lord. All that in Joel, all that preached by Peter in Acts so that what is the consequence of this message? Skipping ahead, 3,000 people get saved. Please, God, I want to see that with my own eyes. I do want to see 3,000 people get saved in one message. Joel, lesson six. This is all, this is why Peter quoted Joel, the revival. God promises revival whenever his people return to him in humility and faith. Whenever and wherever God's people turn to him in repentance and faith, God stands ready to pour out his spirit and great power for the proclamation of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, for the transformation of hearts, lives, and culture. What was happening when Pentecost happened, when the Holy Spirit came down? The church was gathered. What were they doing? They were praying. They were in humility. They were, they were seeking God's face. They were, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14. The promise of Joel. If you look at Joel chapter 2, that's the end of the chapter, what Peter quoted, but at the beginning of the chapter, do you know what you have? You have God's own people being idiots, being stupid, turning their backs on the blessings of God, and the consequence of that was misery. And now Joel, the prophet, comes along and says, yet even now God says, return to me with all your heart and I will have mercy on you. The promise of Joel 2.28 is the same as the promise of revival that is punctuated all throughout Scripture. And Peter stands up and says, you want to know what's happening right here? This is that, which is spoken about the prophet Joel. This is revival. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you ever called on the name of the Lord? Have you ever turned to Jesus? Have you ever fled for refuge from the hound of heaven and the avenger of blood to Jesus Christ? Because that's what Peter is preaching. He makes the day of Pentecost about Jesus Christ and the whole church today makes it about the Holy Spirit. And I'll go with Peter on this one. If you pick it up there in verse 22, men of Israel, he quotes Joel, and now it's Peter talking. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Remember what's happening. The Holy Spirit has come down in power. He's empowering the miracle of speaking in tongues. The disciples are now proclaiming the grace of God in a dozen, dozens of languages all at once. People are amazed. Some people are interested. Some people are scoffing, saying they are drunk as if that explains anything. And now Peter says, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And after quoting Joel, he reviews the life of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And he said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. They knew their Messiah was coming. The whole Testament was full of him. You knew the signs of his coming. You knew the signs of his miracles. You saw all of it fulfilled in Jesus. He was attested. The word means proven in a court of law. 
to you. The gathered crowd actually lived in Jerusalem where and when Jesus was killed. They all knew what was going on. Many of them had permanent homes there. They were there when Jesus was there. They were there for all of this. They literally had their own undeniable evidence of who Jesus was. And still, they crucified the Savior, but but God raised him up. And to prove that God raised him up, Peter quotes Another Old Testament prophecy, this time from David in the Psalms, verse 25. Are you with me so far? Okay. I am spinning plates, trying to not let any of them fall. We are coming to a big finale, so stay with. For David says concerning him, and now this is a quote, I foresaw the Lord. So now Joel was 800 B.C. Peter quotes him. David was 1,000 B.C. in the Psalms. Peter quotes him. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. That's 1,000 B.C. Hades was the dwelling place of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come a thousand years after this was written, to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, not death, life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. All of this is simply saying that even when Messiah dies, and he will, he will not stay dead because God couldn't let that happen. Christ will rise from the dead. That's actually in the Psalms, and Peter quotes that particular psalm, and his listeners hear that particular psalm. And what happened when they heard that? Verse 37 says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Lord, do this in our city, do this in our nation, do this in Sacramento, do this in Washington, D.C., and do this for any of us where our heart is hard toward you. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They were pierced. They were profoundly moved. Their consciences were awakened and their consciences were convicted. They had this horrible realization. They had a burning sense of their urgent need. What shall we do to be saved? Now, hold that thought. Let's go back to doubting Thomas in John 20, because here is Thomas the disciple, heartbroken. Jesus has died, refusing to believe the reports of his resurrection, refusing even to believe the prophecies in the Psalms like we just read, until Jesus comes in and shows himself and invites Thomas to touch him and see that he is real. And Thomas does that, and he falls to his knees, and he says, my Lord and my God, because Jesus gave him undeniable evidence and he believed. But the next thing Jesus says may be the very most important thing that I want to get across to you today in John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Who's that? I've not seen him. I've not seen a miracle. I've not spoken in tongues, but I believe but I believe that's the greater blessing. That's the greater blessing. You want your evidence. You demand your proof. You say that if God were real, he would show himself to you. If he existed, he would prove himself to you. Where's my proof? Where's my undeniable evidence? Then I'll believe in Jesus. Then I'll believe in God. I would say to you, do you want undeniable evidence? Okay, look within yourself and behold the wonders of the human body, soul, and spirit. There are more synapses in your brain than there are stars in the sky. There's your sign. Undeniable evidence. You want undeniable evidence? Look around yourself and behold the beauties of nature and of a world teeming with innumerable forms of life, each one more complicated than anything, even the simplest. There's no such thing as a simple life form. They're more complicated than anything the brightest minds and most sophisticated technology can 
imitate and even understand. There's your undeniable evidence. Or look above yourself and see the starry heavens and this grand cosmos, too complex and vast for words, indeed too grand to even begin to explain. The undeniable evidence is written all around and even within, and people still won't believe. Why? Because we say seeing is believing. But God says no, believing is seeing. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we're all trying to turn that one around. And this, I think, is the lesson of Pentecost. Because here, these scoffers, they have seen and heard the miracle of speaking in tongues. To any open-minded person, to any truly logical person, there's some evidence, at least worthy of consideration, that they scoff. They're dismissive. Oh, they're just drunk, as if that's actually an argument. Oh, they'll say, you're just a Christian. Oh, you're narrow-minded. Oh, you're one of those bigots. Oh, you're just a hater. And on and on it goes. They refuse to deal with the evidence in plain sight right before their very eyes. They refuse to consider the point. They refuse to discuss the merits or argue the point. So they are dismissive and they are condescending and they are insulting to Christians as if that alone would exonerate them one day before the throne of lazing justice. It won't. Can't be sarcastic with God on Judgment Day. Good luck. It will not exonerate them. And the human conscience knows so. They are literally, the Bible says, storing up wrath for themselves in that great and awesome day of the Lord. Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, both men die. The rich man goes to a place of torment in hell. And Lazarus goes to a place of comforts in paradise, along with believers of the ages past, including Abraham. The rich man, this is a parable of Jesus. The rich man asks for Lazarus to bring him just a drop of water. And, Lazar- and Abraham says, no, that can't happen. Then the rich man asks something very important. He says, well, can you please send Lazarus back from the dead toward my brothers so they can be saved and won't come to this place of torment? Again, Abraham says, no. He says, your brothers have the law and the prophets, meaning they have enough warning right there in the Bible. And then you have the rich man saying, no, no. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's exactly what's happening on the day of Pentecost. Here they are, this audience of people who know Jesus is risen from the dead and remain unpersuaded. They see in in their own lives the undeniable evidence of speaking in tongues, yet they deny the undeniable. They have seen and at least heard of the undeniable as evidence of the resurrection of Christ, yet they deny the undeniable. You guys, people don't deny Christ for lack of evidence. They deny Christ because their heart is sinful and hard and they are hell-bent on going their own way. That's why, and you know what it takes to break through that? The Spirit of God and the Word of God. It's the only thing that'll break through. And we give gospel invitations at this church. We spend a month or more having you pray for your friends who don't know Christ. Why? So the Holy Spirit can go and plow up the hardened soil of their hearts so they can hear and receive the gospel. It's not just speaking in tongues they witness. And get this, you guys. Peter stands up and says, Jesus rose from the dead. And when Peter preached that, right there in front of him were eyewitnesses of the fact. They have seen Jesus. And if Peter wanted to prove like a lawyer that Christ is risen from the dead, he would call on people to come on up and testify. Come on up and testify. But he didn't do that. What did he do instead? Peter quoted scripture. He quoted Moses and the prophets. He put the word of God on the stand. And he said, this is the testimony. 
And he let the word of God speak for itself. Because, dear church, the word of God is a more powerful testimony than any sign, any wonder, any experience, any logical syllogism, any speaking in tongues, any miracle, any healing, any glory cloud, gold dust, or any tangible anything you could ever imagine. Because no matter how undeniable the evidence, the fallen human heart will find a way to deny it. But this word of God bears testimony to Jesus Christ. And when the spirit of God applies the word of God to even the hardest heart, you'll have what we see on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. Let me just tie a bow on this and we'll be finished. Because I said it's our turn to be Pentecostal. What does it mean to be Pentecostal? Three things. We have a Pentecostal message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Savior, crucified and risen again. Believe on him. Call on him and be saved. That's what Peter preached. So we have a Pentecostal message. Let's be Pentecostal this way. We have a Pentecostal mission, which is to tell every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every neighborhood of the wonderful work of God and salvation to open salvation's door and invite everyone we know to step inside. Let's be Pentecostal with a mission. And we have a Pentecostal method, which is the power of the Spirit coupled with the power of the Word to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God to everyone who believes. I preached part one of this message Let's be Pentecostal. And I went to a friend's home, and one of the wonderful pianists in our church, Ken Hecht, was there, and he said, Bill, Bill, come here. And he went to the living room, he sat down on the piano, and he started playing a song. And because I'm 400 years old, I know this song. It was actually written in 1912 by a hymn writer named Charles Gabriel, who, after living, growing up in Iowa, living in San Francisco, moved to Chicago and wrote this hymn. The words go, and I knew the song. I sang along, which none of you want to hear, believe me. Lord, as of old at Pentecost, thou didst thy power display with cleansing, purifying flame. Descend on us, we pray. Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power. Thy floodgates of blessing on us throw open wide. Lord, send the old-time power, the Pentecostal power, that sinners be converted and thy name glorified. And if that's being Pentecostal, I want to be Pentecostal. To you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, send the old time power. Lord, there are over 100,000 people in our own county who don't know their spiritual right hand from their spiritual left hand. They're lost. Send the old time Pentecostal power that we might proclaim to them in whatever language they need to hear the wonderful love and the matchless grace of a Savior named Jesus. We are available for this. We are open to this. Use us for this, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people can say, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.